is he going to make a film of just like unrelenting poverty and brutality because of everything that happened to him in his life? Like, yes. Yeah. Is he canceled? <laughs> is he canceled because he c- couldn't live in his home country? Yeah. Without fear of being executed? Like, yeah. No, he's, he's canceled because of that obscure object of desire. Yeah. <laughs> he was canceled for being too horny in France in the 1970s, which is a hard thing to do. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's it right there. The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. Tell oh, you the truth, this guy's starting to get on my nerves. You want to crown him? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them off the hook. It's hot. It's hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. Very, very, very hot. Open fire! Hello, friends, and welcome to The Gauntlet. I am one of your hosts, Eric Marsh, and once again with me are Andrew Stasulis and Ryan Saunders. The Gauntlet is a weekly double feature podcast in which one of the hosts picks a theme for the week and the other two hosts pick movies in response to that theme. And we come on here and we have it out at the Gauntlet Studios. It's episode 59, Fandemonium. And I just got to say, after a couple weeks of gallivanting around Europe like Harry Lime, I am uh, very pleased to see you both again and uh, be back here with you. We're glad to have you back. Things got a little weird while you were gone. That's <laughs> yeah, for sure. I noticed. It did. Yeah, we got a little naughty, but you look great. You look like you've been, you know, baked by Europe, and you're a lovely treat from a European bakery. It's delicious <laughs> to have you home. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. Well, uh, fitting then that this week, you know, my topic was fandemonium films about fans of of whatever kind because uh from a distance i kind of felt like a a fan myself of the pod listening what are they gonna get up to this time you know and uh oh yeah great episodes you know uh you (laughs) did some good work while i was uh away um, and speaking of uh, fans, I wanted to do the uh, Marsh's mailbag up front here as a as a tribute You've got uh, to our fans because we had a letter here from friend and fan of the pod, Alyssa Heflin. And uh, when I got home and checked Marsh's mailbag uh, and saw the headline of this email, I had a, a big grin on my face. It's titled Sherman Innocent. Oh, boy. (laughs) Hello. I've been meaning to reach out for a very long time to say that I absolutely adore the gauntlet. I love the work all three of you put into having intelligent, thoughtful discussions about movies you pair together. And that very work introduced me to so many great films that I probably would never have seen otherwise. An Autumn's Tale, Avengement, Hell in the Pacific, the list can and does go on forever. It's become a staple of my week, and I am always excited when a new episode graces my feed. With that said... Here we go. I sadly rode out today, not with gifts but with my sword, in defense of one Alex Sherman, who got an undue tongue-lashing on this week's episode with regards to the strip club scene in Times Square. 
I'm not one to get hot easily, but I felt that, while I understand a degree of discomfort, the conversation got overly paternal in its concerns, and I feel the need to defend Alex's claims of wholesomeness. When I think about the scene where the initial performance and overcoming of anxiety takes place, it's not just that she becomes comfortable performing in a strip club, but specifically that she becomes comfortable expressing her love for Nikki, the only person that she is paying attention to, rendering what could have been an exploitative scene into something far more intimate and sweet than the pod gives it credit for. As a small side note, it's pretty clear that the club owner gives the girl job primarily as a favor to Nikki, who it's stated in the film he knows already. While again, I understand why members of the firmer sex in 2022 might be made uncomfortable by the scene, and maybe it's for the best that they are, to me it is an interesting and romantic sequence that shows the reality that many lesbians found a certain amount of freedom in the same places where danger and seediness took root. Maybe I'm biased, and maybe as a lesbian myself, I'm so attached to the story of young lesbian grifters that Moyle initially wanted that I'm not willing to see anything else. But I'm standing by Sherman here. Regardless, I love the episode, and any podcast that can get me this heated is A-OK in my book. Looking forward to more. Alyssa. Sherman doesn't need that kind of encouragement. (laughs) (laughs) I love to see it. Yeah, the only thing I will say is that uh, in terms of our like group friendship dynamic, uh, you know, Alex isn't uh, a predator. He's going to be bearing the brunt of um, of our tomfoolery. Yeah, you picked on him a little bit, you know. Yeah, it's less so, you know, the aggressiveness towards his reading of the film, but more just the spirit of Sherman that we like to, you know, give him a, a rough time every now and then. I think Alyssa's reading of the film is extremely apt and perceptive. I stand by my comments about villainous Tim Curry. In there though that was uh, oh, i stand by that no question yeah and uh, one other uh, note from a fan uh timothy who previously contacted us about first graders has pointed out to us that uh the Metrograph is doing a, a road trip series this summer, and they uh, have programmed none other than Dion Brothers, aka the Gravy Train. Oh, uh, and Timothy, yeah. you know, he says, "I don't know if you know their heads, but uh, the Gauntlet influence is out there." Wow, yeah. I wonder if it perhaps is a new restoration, or is I this think just it's like 16, a print? I think it's a sixteen millimeter, uh, probably a. Not yeah, for, for from it. the archive. Maybe it's like a TV copy. Interesting. Romp and stomp <laughs> to <laughs> the screening of the gravy train. All right. Well, speaking of romping and stomping, I think it's time uh, we talk about uh, our films and our topic for the week, which, again, was fandomonium. And uh, let's just get right into it. Um Ryan, you had the uh, earlier film. Why don't you introduce us what you brought first? Sure. Well, when I was thinking about a lot of the films I I had been picking recently, um, I was trying to to mix it up a little bit more. Um, I had another backup of just like a 70-minute film directed by a French woman that I was considering for this episode that I haven't seen called Travolta et moi. And it looks great, but I'll, I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to check it out later. I thought it was, I was long overdue for a proper horror film. You know, I, I had, um, a bit of an aggressive body horror film 
last week, but I wanted to find something that was, you know, a little more just like a standard horror fair. And I think one of the reasons is because I was thinking about me on the gauntlet and maybe listeners who don't know me would never assume that I do really like blood and guts and nasty, disgusting horror movies. Uh, so I wanted to maybe bring something that would represent that. Um, that's not what ended up happening with the film I picked, <laughs> uh, much to my surprise. Yeah. One that was marketed to me as as a horror film and one that I walked away with thinking that had a rather horrifying final 15 minutes. But beyond that, uh, it's more of a love story of sorts, as the director Eckhard Schmidt refers to this film. And this film is Der Fan, or The Fan, from 1982, a German film. And the film tells the story of a young woman named Simone who has become completely infatuated and obsessed with a contemporary pop singer who goes by the single letter R. She is constantly writing him letters, demanding that he reply, and her fervor is so intense that she is constantly following up with the post office, following mailmen around town, hoping that uh, you know she'll receive an answer from her letter. And this sort of reaches a fever pitch where she she feels she needs to take the matter into her own hands. She gives herself an ultimatum of one week, and if she doesn't hear back from R, she is going to confront him. And lo and behold, she doesn't get a letter back, and that's what she does. The majority of the like middle of the film is her meeting R and that confrontation between the two of them, and it went into a direction I wasn't necessarily expecting. I didn't assume that the two of them would actually have full-on conversations in the film, but um, that happens and, and much more. We have a fan who does confront her pop star idol, and uh, no spoilers for now, but we'll get into the grisly details of where that relationship ends up later on in our discussion. Um, it's a pretty unique film. It's an extreme slow burn. The vibe of the film was very different than what I was expecting. I was lulled to sleep at a couple moments and had to sort of jostle myself awake and return. But I don't want to necessarily say that that's a problem of the film um, because I was rather entranced and that itself is one of the alternate titles of the film, Trances. And this film does move I would almost argue at a glacially slow pace at times, but if you surrender yourself to the 80s pastel colors from the German film stock, if you listen to the music that the German band Rheingold has developed for the film, there's a lot of pleasures to be gleaned from it, and it does have a very fun climax of sorts. Um, but again, no spoilers for now, we'll get into those details later on. But yeah, so that is Der Fan from 1982. I, I hate to be the guy that, you know, on the week of Fandemonium picks a film that is literally called The Fan. There's a lot of them. Yeah, I felt like it was a little too easy, but I, I couldn't resist this time because the uh, it, it just seemed exciting for me. And I knew you were just coming back from Germany, so I thought maybe it would be like a little bit of a treat. You know, I'm feeling homesick for for the Berlinisch Bumpen, you know. Uh, this film, though, is from uh, shot in Munich, primarily. That's where the yeah. director is based. But, um, yeah, so that is The Fan from 1982. Thank you very much. Andy, why don't you tell us about what you brought? Well, um, you know, I think with um, this topic, uh, it's very easy to find uh, a lot of films that explore the idea of fandemonium fans obsession that that 
I think lean a little bit more in their their energy towards what Ryan picked. You know, there's lots of movies about uh, fan obsession going to to very dark places. Uh, you know, speaking of the fan, that's 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 one that immediately popped into my head. Tony Scott's Oh yeah, The Fan, which I think is great. And yeah, there's a lot of movies called The Fan about you know the the really twisted side of that kind of um, fan obsession we see. So in in my mind, I I, I was trying to lean more towards a more what I think is is a more, I guess, uplifting or positive, uh, at least one could read it, um, side of fandom, of fandomonium. And uh, while I was racking my brain, a movie popped into my head that I had seen many years ago that I was a very big fan of. And it's a movie that I, I feel is, is you know, we, we say this a lot, we use this a lot, but I, I really mean it this time, like all but forgotten uh <laughs> Today, uh, and that is a film by uh, British director, I guess Polish British director Robert Kwiatkowski from 1997, a movie called Love and Death on Long Island. This movie stars John Hurt as Giles Deoth, uh, which can of course be read and is in the film as Giles Death. Right, but but it is pronounced death, a play on the title, and of course, uh, its its inspiration, uh, death in Venice. Uh, this does come from a novel by uh, I believe Gilbert Adair. Giles Deoth is a an old, well respected English author living in London. Uh, he's a very reclusive man, and a man who admittedly has no use for modernity, for modern times, technology, culture. Uh, he's a man that is, is, is sort of from another era altogether, even though it is set in, you know, contemporary times in 1997. And following a, a, a moment when this very stuffy, old, uh, lonely, reclusive British author finds himself locked out of his house, he decides to, to kill some time by going to the cinema, and he sees that they're showing an adaptation of an E.M. Forster novel and decides that'd be the perfect way to, to kill some time. But unfortunately, through a, 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 a mix-up, and, and probably simply because he, he never has gone to the movie theater before, <laughs> he accidentally buys a ticket not to the E.M. Forster adaptation, but to a movie from America called Hot Pants College 2, a bawdy uh, American uh, gross-out comedy, probably along the lines of, you know, Porky's Meatballs, American Pie, that kind of thing. And and much to his horror, when he stands up into the theater and, and yells, this isn't E.M. Forster, uh, <laughs> You know, he's he's quite upset by this, this accident. But as he's preparing to leave, he sees an actor enter the frame. An actor played by Jason Priestley. An actor in the movie named Ronnie Bostock. And Giles is immediately transfixed by this beauty in a way that he cannot really understand. And he sits down and he ends up watching the rest of the movie and leaves the theater with 
a new obsession of his. And the rest of the film uh, explores this sort of awakening that he has experienced as he becomes the biggest Ronnie Bostock fan in the world. Uh, and uh, it, is a, it is a very touching film uh, about time, about aging, about life, about death, about sex, about fandomonium, all that together. And I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a remarkably unsung film featuring, uh, I think, uh, one of the, the greatest performances in a career of great performances by John Hurt. And as a matter of fact, I don't know if either of you saw this, but uh, you know, to the end of his life, John Hurt said that this was his favorite role. It was his favorite performance uh, in this film. And it is indeed, I think, a showcase for his abilities as an actor because he carries what would be a very, I think, embarrassing, cringeworthy, ridiculous, some would maybe even say creepy guy. Uh, he carries him through this film with uh, the utmost pathos and dignity. And uh, much like the fan in Ryan's film, he decides eventually that he must confront his obsession. He does travel to Long Island where Ronnie Bostock splits his time between Hollywood and, and New York State. Um, and yeah, I think we're going to discover ourselves all the, the pleasures, uh, both uh, pleasant and um, somewhat difficult that this film has has to offer. I think it's a, it's a really beautiful film and uh, was very excited to, to bring it to the podcast for, for both of you guys. And I think it balances quite well uh, the film that, that Ryan chose. I think so, too. <laughs> Thank you very much. Yeah, uh, I'm really glad you, you did you did bring this film, Andy, because it, it was such a nice counterbalance. You know, leading up to the episode, I was, you know, racking my brain thinking... What you know? What are the other fan films? And you're right; they they are overwhelmingly you know leaning into some sort of like stalker, uh, obsession, violent kind kind of territory, right? Whether it's a Taxi Driver or, or a Misery, you know these sort of classic uh, kind of creepy stalking <laughs> texts yeah. or whatever. And this movie does flirt with it a little bit. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's yeah, <laughs> and I appreciated that as well. And, and to give it credit. Well, to give both films credit, they were totally not what I expected, uh, I guess, in, bo in both cases. In the case of Love and Death on Long Island, it's a film that, you know, I could see done in this kind of like indie Hollywood way that would be terrible, you know, and it is not that at all. And even the title, I'm like, got some fucking 90s movie called Love and Death on Long Island. <laughs> like, I don't know, has Andy gone too far, you know? But it is really a, a subtle film and a quite, yeah, engaging film, uh, especially because of Hurt, obviously, sort of carrying it. But it definitely, yeah, was, it wasn't what I really thought it would be, and it didn't fall into certain traps that I thought it, it may fall into. Uh, and in the case of Derfan, yeah, Ryan, like you said in your intro, uh, you even said, oh, I'm, this is a horror movie to me. Uh, and before we watched it, right? Yeah. And then you watch it and I'm going like, no, this is like, yeah, like a trance film. This is like a bizarre kind of like obsession meditation for 
60, 70 minutes, you know, and then it veers into explicit territory. Uh, but way more of like, uh, like an ambient musical yeah. <laughs> that I was expecting. Mm-hmm. And I, I gotta say, I loved it, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, it almost feels like just a really, really long joy division music video. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. In the best way possible. Oh, yeah. I was already just like listening to Rheingold, which is, you know, the band of the actor in the movie like that did the score that's also the band in the anyway it's all (laughs) like that guy was a real musician that's his music and it's so good Uh, and the way that the film yeah depicts her all-consuming obsession with R uh, not dissimilar to the way that we see a similar all-consuming obsession overtake uh, Giles, right? Where he's soon sending away his maid, you know? Like, I need a little more time in my office, right? And ultimately, it's an old man cutting out, you know, like Teeny Bopper magazine photos of Jason Priestley. (laughs) Uh, There are excellent collages in both films, and I think that's almost like a requirement uh, of a a fandomonium film. There's got to be that sort of, like ritualistic fetishizing kind of like stuff going on. Uh, And both of these movies have them uh, all over. Yeah. And I think that one of the things that's really interesting about the two films is something you laid out. And that is sort of the co-collaborators of it when you think about it. So in terms of Durfan, there is the Rheingold score that I think without it, a lot of the film's power would just kind of evaporate and be gone because it does provide such a perfect pulse and rhythm to it. I was lost in the trance of the film because of that score. And at the same time with Love and Death on Long Island, this was a film, you know, as you mentioned, Marsh, you see the title and you go like, oh God, you know, one of these 90s things. And (laughs) I think that so much of the film, the recipe of it, are a lot of things that I might have struggled with had it not had such a wonderful performance from John Hurt. Like, he almost feels like a a co-author at times of this film, or just at the very least a co-collaborator. He brings so much to it. There's, like, the cliche of the old British fuddy-duddy that really is, like, out of touch with the modern world that can feel like a tired trope in less skilled hands of a performer. But he brings so much, like, pathos and empathy to that that I was completely surrendering myself to every moment. And the film is also full of these, like, clever touches that I also think in less skilled hands would have just kind of annoyed me. But in the way it's sort of self-referential and metatextual, I thought was really appealing. You know, whether it's just a clever sound edit or just repurposing you know, visual materials in a unique way uh, through very much John Hurt's character's perspective. It was just delightful, you know? Yeah, and to 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 build on that just idea of, you know, collaboration uh, in, in, in these films to give credit where credit's due, I think also the, the, the very deliberate uh, and thoughtful casting of Jason Priestley at this time in this role, you know, this was... Uh, at the height of his popularity as basically like the person he's playing in this film in 90210, Beverly Hills 90210. And it came at a time when Jason Priestley was experiencing the same kinds of feelings that his character in the movie was, that he was like, 
I don't want to just be this teen idol on, on these sort of schlocky American, you know, uh, TV shows and in these corny movies. Like I want to do something bigger. And this movie kind of came along and was, was sort of like offered to him at a point where he was just like, that's, that's exactly what I want. And so I think it's also his presence in the film that it's, it's Jason Priestley of all people and their relationship when they do, you know, getting a little bit ahead of ourselves, ultimately come together in the film. It's it's like also how they interact that I think adds so much to it. You know, mm-hmm. I think, again, like to just give credit where credit's due, I think Priestley does a really good job of of being the sort of other the other half, you know, the the object of that uh, obsession. And I also think one of the things that the films do so well is their depiction of those objects of obsession. Because when you have films about fandom and fandomonium, you have to make a convincing argument for that source of obsession from the fans, right? It's not necessarily a real band, like something like A Hard Day's Night, where, yes, the fandomonium is quite clear because it's the Beatles. Here, these are made up pop stars or actors. So we have to have media embedded within the film to make their um, superstardom convincing. And that was one of my favorite elements of both films, both the music videos featured in Durfan, like the performances on top of the pops and things like that of this musician and why people are obsessed with him, I thought was really well detailed. But then especially in Love and Death in Long Island, when we actually have footage from all of the C-grade movies that <laughs> he is in, you know, Hot Pants College 2. Tex-Mex. <laughs> Skid marks. Yeah, tex- <laughs> they all have that distinct visual quality that you would find from those types of films. The scenes from Hot Pants College 2 really don't look like the other scenes in Love and Death on Long Island. It was a DVD, so I couldn't quite tell whether they were actually changing film stock. But beyond that, just the filters they must have been using, I was completely convinced by the simulacra of like an 80s lowbrow comedy. Just something like broad that would just get farted out into theaters. It all looked so real, while the rest of the film had its own unique style that was in direct contrast to those films that were being depicted for to create this. I mean, well, I guess he wasn't a superstar. He's like a Z-grade celebrity. But you know what I mean? Why John Hurt would be obsessed with this guy. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think, the, yeah, the media, the mixed media in, in both of these films is extremely pleasurable. Hey, are you sure this is the right window, man? Uh, I don't know about this, Corey. What if we get caught? We're not going to get caught, jerk off. And any minute now, that room is going to be filled with butt-naked babes. <laughs> right. Uh, the... <laughs> The top pop music video. I mean, that weird mannequin show, whatever. We can get into that later if we want. But (laughs) yeah, like the watching clips from these Z-grade movies, uh, yeah, it really helps flesh out their obsessions, you know? And I think both films do not have a lot of backstory. Durfan especially has like none uh, because it's kind of provocative in in making you sort of go like, why, right? Wants the audience to sort of do that work. Uh, And in the case of Love and Death on Long Island, it's, you know, 
he lost his wife a few years ago. He's this stuffy, sad old man who refuses to enter, you know, the modern world, right? Um, but neither films spend a lot of time, like, dwelling on the past or anything like that. So, like, we're wrapped up in their in their present, you know, as Giles is scouring uh, sight and sound to see uh, if he can find any mentions of Ronnie. And I don't know if you guys caught this, but, of course, uh, one of my favorite parts of the movie is he's looking through these TV listings and right under one of the Ronnie Bostock films is The Glass Shield, Charles Burnett, Ooh, uh, wow. former uh, guest of the guest of the pod. Yeah. <laughs> Gauntlet uh, champion. Yeah. Gauntlet champion, Charles <laughs> Burnett, featured in this movie in 1997 in the listings. So I thought that was pretty great. Yeah. The minutia of it all, you know. Yeah. You know, one thing I will say, though, about the fan is that even though it is wrapped up in the present, it also really does feel like the present of the fan is really like grounded and based in the past of Germany. There are some really interesting things that Eckhart Schmidt is doing. It's pretty low key, but in terms of depicting an obsession with a pop star is very similar to being obsessed with a dictator because when you talked about seeing those collages in the films of, you know, her bedroom that has are the, the 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 singer all displayed all over her wall the first image we actually see is like a large black and white photo of a bunch of people in a crowd doing a nazi salute and we follow that salute with a pan with the camera to the image of the pop star and even then too his like i don't know if it's like his trademark logo for his band or just yes, one of his is. albums yeah. is like an ss symbol yeah and so even then there the film is flirting constantly with a lot of those details of just our obsessions with pop stars and the way we rely on them can be read as the types of obsessions and the way we would rely on those you know heading taking our country in that direction well you know know, i think you used i don't want to totally misquote you here but you almost said like subtle or something like that and i personally had a very different experience i didn't think it was subtle at all i thought it was (laughs) it was very in in my face what uh what the director was doing. And I especially think for anyone in Germany, uh, yeah, they, they would have found it <laughs> a flirtation with that idea at all. I think that, uh, by the end of the film for me, um, you know, it was very clear what, uh, the, the, the filmmaker was trying to do in, in drawing those parallels, those connections. Yes. Yeah. So. Well, not necessarily subtle. I just meant low key in the sense that not every scene dwells on it. We just have like a couple glimpses into that because when we do see it, yes, it's quite obvious. We have SS logos. She eventually turns into a skinhead by the end of the film because of her obsessions. So when it's depicted in front of us, yes, it is. It's very, very clear, but most of the other time it is sort of just like a romance, you know, her longingly gazing at this man. We just know that this present is informed by the past. Sure, this the stuff alluding to Nazism is usually like visual or color based or like iconographic based. Yeah, um, I mean so- the singer's you know wardrobe is is just all these various he's he's a brown shirt he's a black shirt you know he's dressed like a fucking nazi the whole time yeah the curtains in his home look like they're repurposed nazi flags just like using the the fabric from it yeah yeah Mm -hmm. not like ronnie bostock who's the star of a sitcom titled home is where the heart is (laughs) (laughs) yeah 
And poor Giles doesn't even know what a, sit- what a sitcom is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One other thing, you know, these films have in common that, again, I think, you know, is a common sort of thing for, for these kinds of films is we do get fantasy projections, right? Uh, we We get a a look into both characters' psyches in terms of their uh, fandom and their obsessions, right? And I think I think maybe my favorite scene in Love and Death in Long Island is when he's he's like dreaming uh, about Ronnie. And all of a sudden, he's he's on a quiz show. Oh yeah, answering questions <laughs> about Ronnie's personal life, his dog, mm-hmm. what kind of sneakers he likes. You have two minutes on the life and work of Ronnie Bostock, starting now. Ronnie Bostock was born in Southern California, but where does he live now? Chesterton, Long Island. Correct. What is the name of the dog which features prominently in his publicity stills? Strider. Correct. What is Ronnie Bostock's favorite reading material? Stephen King and science fiction. Correct. For what does Ronnie have a self-confessed weakness? Pizza? Yes, I'll accept that. It's actually pizza with extra anchovies. Under what circumstances would Ronnie do a nude scene? If it were tasteful. And? Essential to the plot. Correct. Why was it not cast in the original Hot Pants College? Uh, too young. No, he was unable to break his contract with the sitcom Home is Where the Heart Is. What is Ronnie's favorite kind of training shoe and why? Reeboks, because uh, British stuff is cool. Correct. With which of his rock idols was he recently photographed? Axel Rose. Correct. That shit was killing me. Just this old British man, like, taking his sexual obsession with Jason Priestley to being on a quiz show. Like, I can name more facts about this guy than anyone. And like a super respectable and stuffy quiz show at that, like distinctly British, you know, he's very proper in his tweed suit, just sitting there, legs crossed, black box room. But those personal obsessions, yeah, come through these letters that the narrations in both of these films are us hearing read aloud, these letters that are being written to these objects of obsessions, you know, which is an interesting framework that both films share. And I, I want to go back to this idea that you both have sort of brought up to about the idea of, of you know, the, the past, um, because, you know, I think that's from the get go, that is very clearly uh, what is established about Giles is that on a certain level, he kind of lives in the past. Right. Uh, he actually has no use for the present. And that's brought up immediately but but really the film then is about him sort of like violently and i i mean like emotionally violently confronting the present like really that's Mm -hmm. that's what the film is about is is the arrival of the present to this man who is you know trapped in the past uh and and that's really i think where so much of the pleasures come in you know there were times i don't know if both of you felt this where there was almost a a monsieur hulot quality to some of what he was encountering as he has to try to catch up in order to feed his obsession right he cannot uh you know read about ronnie bostock in novels you know he has to he has to go out and get a, a video player at a certain point and that's an amazing scene where he he goes and he's buying a video uh like a vhs machine but he's looking at microwaves you know and he's like you know do these things play video and the guy's like oh those are microwaves but then he buys the the vhs player so that he can watch you know the tapes of tech specs and skid marks 
But when the delivery guy comes to his home with the VHS player, he asks Giles, you know, okay, where's the TV? I'll hook this thing up for you. And Giles didn't know he also needed a TV for the video machine, you know? I mean, yeah. I love that he's also just like upsold on the state of the art, like top brand VCR too. You know, like that guy could tell, oh, this old man, he comes from money. I can get him to buy the the nicest thing available. You know? Yeah, yeah. And and so for him, you know, this I think this movie has so many different kind of of pleasures that do sort of surprise you. And there is in his obsession with Ronnie also this this again sort of like violent collision with the present and perhaps the future uh for for giles that that really is what we are are grappling with as well uh as 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 an audience you know i like too that part of his you know like orientation into the present day is getting berated by video store clerks uh extremely (laughs) pleasurable scene and i love the the main clerk there's a 10 pound deposit so you don't nick nothing but you get a two pound voucher for bernie's pizza delivery you can take out two tapes now if you want um could I forfeit my Bernie's pizza voucher for a third one? That's out. I, I, I'm sorry. Tex-Mex. Went out an hour ago. Really? We only keep one of everything unless it's a big fuck-off blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm bringing back big fuck-off blockbuster yeah. to, uh, Man, to the lexicon. Yeah, I it's like full it, of such funny little details because even then he thinks he can rent these tapes or put them on hold, you know, for a few weeks. because he, he thinks it's like a library. Yeah, exactly. And they're like, well, it takes people two weeks to read a book, sir. Like, you can watch this film tonight. Exactly. I mean, he is uh, he is a man whose journey is, is uh, at times very, like, painful for us as an audience, but, but also, like, very charming. And again, you know, Hurt carries it uh, with with yeah such, I mean yeah the, the the word I've already used like dignity you know he he at times is on the verge throughout this film of really embarrassing himself but but he is he is able to sort of just ride so many of those moments uh, with with great uh, grace. Yeah. Uh, I love the dignity he shows simply by flipping through a teeny bopper magazine by having it on this like big wooden, slightly elevated platform that he has on his mahogany desk. You know, he has like an actual reading platform displayed so he can very carefully flip through this magazine and look for images of Ronnie. I like that when his obsession sort of reaches a fever pitch before he ends up going to, you know, the States to to find Ronnie, one of the last things he does is give a lecture titled uh, The Death of the Future, but then it turns into, like, uh, you know, (laughs) it's like a Godard lecture, you know? For is it not the case that when we are in the habit of viewing a film more than once, assisted by that technological aid memoir, the video player, then a remarkable phenomenon presents itself. We see that what at first appeared to be merely accidental or unrehearsed becomes on subsequent viewings an indelible part of the film's texture. And he starts theorizing on video. 
And this is what I really connected is like his one of his main points he's making to this his lecture audience is, you know, he's theorizing about repeat viewings, yeah. you know, oh, because yeah. he now has a VCR and he's replaying like Ronnie, you know, obviously. So what I was thinking there is, is he's also becoming younger. Yes. You know, like that is what children do. They rewatch things, you know, like uh, that's also part of what's going on. Right. He's not just like yet confronting the present day, but also like he was probably just going to like die, you know, stuffed up in this like library yeah. until he laid his eyes on Ronnie, you know, just like this depressed widow. Yeah. He sees some, uh, you know, the film opens and, and he is a man who never gives interviews, you know, like, you know, E.M. Forster, apparently, very, very reclusive man. Uh, and he sort of reluctantly uh, is kind of pressured into giving a radio interview to perhaps sell his new book by his publisher. And he's so nervous about it, you can tell. And he he sees, I guess, some sort of reaction in the paper to his interview. And he there's like one little phrase that that really you can tell stings him, which is someone has referred to him as an erstwhile fogey, you know. And so yeah, you know, to your point, Marsh, like yeah, it is like it is him fighting against that, you know, in a very unexpected way for him. And in fact, as he's preparing for that lecture, you know, he tells his publisher, like you know, uh, his publisher asks him, "Have you have you come up with a theme?" And he says, "Yes, it's it's in a sense about finding beauty." where no one thought to look for it. And so again, in the lecture, when he's talking about pausing and repeat viewings, it's him sort of focusing on little moments, these things that the actor Ronnie Bostock does that for him, like really elevate him beyond the, the, the sort of like low, you know, low brow humor, the low brow source material. And it, it, it of course reminded me of, of a whole book that Laura Mulvey had written, Death 24 Times a Second, about this. And, and Mulvey in her book like talks about how, you know, home video, yes, it's such a different experience than the theater, but there's also certain pleasures of the home video experience that we can't have in the theater. And, and it's exactly that, being able to pause something and reflect upon it in a way that we couldn't if we were simply like in the theater, you know, we can't say to the projectionist, you know, pause that for a second, roll that back, you know, but in our modern ability to do that, you know, we, we make discoveries of material that has sometimes been passed off or written off or, or only given one look. And I was kind of reflecting on this film that it's, it's almost like, you know, this is from 1997, but I was sort of like, isn't this movie kind of just like what, like, Twitter is today, you know, it's like people like making arguments about, or so much of what film culture has kind of become. And so much of what we even do on the podcast is saying like, you may think that Hot Pants College 2 is just some, you know, <laughs> bullshit throwaway thing, but no, no, there's tremendous depth if you just look, you know, like yeah. this lecture, honestly, I was like, that lecture was fire. Now in the movie, the 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 crowd is sort of reacting to it very puzzled like what the fuck is he going on about but i was like i was here for yeah. every second of what yeah. he was saying you know i really love the way he's reading that film i thought it was actually very very similar to simone's explanation of why she's so obsessed with r because there's a moment when she's 
during her monologue thinking about R's music itself. And she says, you know, a lot of people say that your music is just one note, that you sing every single song the same way, that you, there's not a lot of diversity or variation in the, your performing style. But she mentions it's not the words you use, but what you mean that counts. And her interpretation of that is that's what falling in love is. You're being around people that are saying the same things over and over again, but by being in love with them, you can see the diversity in their expressions. You can see what they really mean, even if they don't have the language necessarily that the, in what they're communicating. Er singt mit der immer gleichen Stimme. Aber für mich singt er jedes Mal mit einer anderen Stimme. Ich stelle mir vor, dass man so mit einem Menschen zusammen ist, mit dem man glücklich ist. Man sagt oft das Gleiche, aber es ist nicht das Gleiche. Die Worte, die man sagt, zählen nicht. Es zählt, was man meint, nicht was man sagt. Und was man meint, kann man vielleicht gar nicht sagen. And I honestly, in that moment, I found both of these fans to be spiritually linked because what John Hurt is saying just instead in the form of like a British lecture from a very learned man is kind of the same thing. He's, you know, quietly revealing to this crowd that he is in love with this figure, you know, that I don't think he refers to him by name. At, you know, he doesn't talk about Hot Pants College too in the lecture for, you know, all these esteemed guests. But I mean, he is literally though, you know, he is expressing his love and admiration for this performer by projecting what he thinks this person means because there's love there. And I think that that is something that is interesting about the fan as a form of obsession because it isn't just, I think, a stalker obsession movie. It does actually feel like a love story of sorts. Like, I believe her love. I mean, he, it's obviously not reciprocated, but it's more than just obsession. Because I think that lots of films about fans, it just feels like obsession. You know, the the image, they're obsessed with the image. Well, she went harder than most fans, <laughs> as very we will discuss. She went yeah. all the way. Yeah. But when Eckhart Schmidt, like I've seen him in interviews cleverly just say like, oh, my film is a love story. It's not even a horror film. Like, you know, he's being silly, but I think there is some truth there. And yeah, it was those two moments where I felt like I really understood both of these fans. In that sense, these do share something also with other, I think, depictions of fans. And, and to talk about the, the topic more broadly, I, I think that that's something that we often see with people who become, you know, obsessed with, with individuals or groups or bands or celebrities of any kind is also this sense of, you know, and, and both films do it, the fans, they, they look at the figures, you know, they're, their chosen star, whatever, their, their object, object of, of affection yeah. and desire, yeah, that they see them differently than everyone else, right? And right. that's that's so so much a part of it, you know, that it's like, no, other people don't see them the way that I do. My fandom is different. I'm looking deeper. I'm looking, um, I'm looking at things that other people aren't looking at, you know? And, and it leads to then also this sense for them of, of not just obsession, but possession, right? That they yeah. somehow feel like they are uh, the, the the guardians, the protectors, the the owners in some way of what they see is is truly great about these people, you know? Yeah, I agree, because when John Hurt is, like, explaining how 
every element of these films upon reviewing are embedded within the texture of it and everything is so purposeful and Ronnie Bostock belongs in this film. He gives a beautiful performance that, you know, John Hurt treasures. Ronnie Bostock even says like, well, I was only cast in this movie because I look like the guy from the first one that couldn't be in the sequel. You know, so he himself interprets himself as someone who doesn't even really belong within the texture of this mm-hmm. film, you know, which is like yeah. a, you know, a flowery way of saying he's like, well, I'm just, I'm just filling in, you know, but yeah. even John Hurt as a fan, that possessiveness, he's like, no, like you are everything. Like this film cannot function without your presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's like, you know, in, in one of the blurbs that Marsh mentioned when Giles is like looking for anything he can find, you know, what is like the, 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 the sort of capsule for Hot Pants College 2. It's like, you know, a movie without any redeeming features or, you know, and he kind of like, he kind of recoils at that. Like, what are you talking about? No redeeming features. It's got Ronnie fucking Bostock in it, you know? Right. <laughs> we start to see his, so much of the movie is, is his perception. I think both of these movies, right? It's about perception yeah. and, mm-hmm. and how they see the people and what they see. I think in the case of Love and death on long island it's so it's handled with such uh such care and such sensitivity you know that we start to see the connections that he's making we start to see how his brain you know the wheels start to spin you know he's at an art gallery and he's looking at this this painting of the the poet chatterton yeah this famous painting of him sort of like sprawled out after committing suicide and then we see how in a scene from Hot Pants College 2 at a certain point, Ronnie Bostock, who's been, you know, <laughs> somebody threw a pizza at him in this parlor because he was talking to his girl or whatever. He's sort of like the pizza boy laying on the counter and and you see like the match cut between this scene from this dumb comedy to this, you know, uh, some would call it perhaps, uh, you know, a, a uh, grotesque pre-Raphaelite painting. But, but, you know, we see the connection, you know, he passes a diner and he sees the same ketchup bottle from the film, you know, and, and it's just these little moments. I want that ketchup bottle too. Just that like little t- tomato. It's so cute how the, t- the ketchup comes out of like the leaves at the top of the tomato. We got to get ourselves some of that. Yeah. You know, we, we, we start to see the ways in which he finds beauty. You know, we ourselves mm-hmm. make then connections to, you know, what, it, what, you know, what his theme was finding beauty in like unexpected places. We get to watch him sort of like go through that work. Mm-hmm. Fucking Long Island of all places. <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. I like that they both make big trips, you know, out to, oh, yeah. to find the objects of their, of their desires, you know, cause they both sort of reject their world as their fandom accelerates, you know, Giles fires his maid. He's like, Oh, I don't want, well, not necessarily fires, but diminishes, um, her responsibilities. He doesn't want her cleaning his room when he's in there. And, you know, she only needs to prepare certain meals. He doesn't want her there around dinner time when he gets into his like real naughty business and his obsessions. And then at the same time, Simone, you know, she crumples up her homework, throws it at the teacher, goes full, no parents, no rules, just like completely rejects her home life. And her home life, by the way, I do want to mention as being a very strikingly unsettling, blank place of unfeeling, you know, like just having lettuce for dinner. Like I know it was a salad, but it's there's this blandness. Yeah. Yeah. You don't spend a ton of time in there. It's very underlit. 
it's just this, you know, bourgeois existence of television and silences, oppressive silences. And there's a particularly, you know, key moment where she is trying to to watch R on uh, some late night show because she, of course, has concocted a scheme where he's going to wink at her to acknowledge their love about that she wrote about in her letter, and her dad just like turns on a western in the middle of <laughs> R's performance. I love uh, that, and it, that it's so funny. He's just like, I think I've seen it before. It's pretty pretty good though. (laughs) (laughs) It's just so fucking weird. Like everything about it is so just cold, you know. And again, obviously jamming on, you know, what a lot of filmmakers his age then were. Like it continues, or the silent, you know, like yeah, we're still not acknowledging it, right? We're still being silent about it, right? So, uh, again, just the yeah, that's like a a home life worthy of yeah, like Hanukkah or something, just like deeply unsettling in a specifically European way, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like the mother almost says nothing at all, and that father's performance is just so perverse and weird it's like so stylized in a way that i feel like her performance wasn't hers is like really raw and he feels like this shell of a man that has just vacant eyes and again i don't know if maybe it's one of those things where like is he just a bad actor or is there something going on here but i, I think there was something going on there because it is like this hellishly dark room that he is like a ghost telling his daughter about the things he likes and what she should be doing and i think for me this is where you know, I started to really draw the, the for, for myself, the connections between, you know, um, what the filmmaker is, is trying to say about fandom and pop culture and belonging uh, and, and sort of the, the pathway towards, uh, you know, cults of personality and, and ultimately for him, like, Nazism or fascism, you know, mm-hmm. it's these, these sort of disaffected individuals who, who look at the world and, and feel nothing but, you know, uh, loneliness or, or, you know, a lack of passion, uh, a, a, a lack of a, a sort of like bigger project. It's like, oh, this is what life is. It's just us like going to work, going to school, living in these institutions, coming home, sitting in silence. And that she begins to to see this messiah-like figure, you know? And and of course, in the film, it, it the the aesthetics of his pop project, if you want to call it that, are very fascistic. That that they are the 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 aesthetics of of Nazism, and mm-hmm. and you know that's why I think again you see that that you know she's she's being pulled towards it. You know she's being drawn towards it, and it's a commentary on I think at large like German society when you know people, especially for filmmakers of this era who were the first ones to really start to confront it. You know, of like, you know, how did this place that also gave us Goethe, like, you know, lead to these rallies with everyone sick heiling? You know, how did we lose our minds? You know, and I think he's doing it. And and yes, to your to your, I guess, point, Ryan or credit or whatever, you know, he is doing it in a in a in a more in a quieter way. Uh, but but I think that's really where I started to get it, you know, that mm-hmm. it's like this is her 
basically going like, no, all of this sucks. This shit, that's the real shit right there. You know, it's, 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 it's believing in something. It's, it's believing in something that's so much bigger than all this bullshit. This boy who just wants to hold my hand or whatever, like, no, 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 no. You know, I do love when they both then hit the road though, because in the fan, you know, she starts hitching her way and has to deal with a lot of like gross men on the road that keep referring to her as a little minx, you know. And I guess Giles still has his own difficulties he has to deal with. You know, he shacks up in a motel with a matron who is like so enamored with the fact that she's housing a, a writer in her establishment to the point where she gets him a, a typewriter. But I love when people are like fucking next door and Giles can't handle it. And he, the way he complains about it is such a, an old British man way of like, Yes, Mrs. Abbott, is there any possibility of your more uh, short term guests not having rooms next to mine? Well, yes, I do appreciate that. But I also value my own privacy. Yes, indeed. It is interrupting my work. Dude, and that's the thing. Yeah, it's it, Giles is like so sharp, you know? He is not uh, some sort of like, you know, completely like disaffected weirdo. You know, like the girl in right. Derfan is like, you know, would, would sometimes really creep me out, you she know? She's like kind of deranged. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Giles is like, yes, a very witty, intelligent guy. I, of course, as a smoker, loved his, his clap back I was gonna on, say. The, on the taxi driver. Again, very British way of handling that. No, smoking cup, thanks very much. I beg your pardon? It says, no smoking. No, it says, thank you for not smoking. As I am smoking, I don't expect to be thanked. Yeah, I've, I really did feel bad for him when he goes to the U.S. and now he can't, like, smoke everywhere. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, god damn, dude, yeah. And, and that recurring physical element of Hurt's performance, thoroughly enjoyable, you know, his being out of his comfort zone, being a fish out of water once he gets to New York, and then ultimately uh, Long Island, where you can just hear the expressway from your bedroom. Uh, a far cry from his, you know, quiet, uh, you know, British estate or wherever the fuck he lives. Yeah. In, in a very posh situation. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, again, I think it's like, you know, they do a lot of the, yeah, like America be like this and Giles, you know, is, is going to navigate that. But again, I think it's all on this like low key level, you know? Well, and to your point, you know, that you said earlier about him, like becoming younger, I think that's, that's what's so much for me of like the kind of joy in his, in his journey. That's, so, that's where we find so much of the joy, you know, like as he's sort of pushing his, he's like caretaker away from him, you know? And she's sort of like, well, who's going to make your dinner? You know, like, what do you mean? You don't want me in the evenings. He's like, oh, I think I can take care of myself. And I don't know if you picked up on it, but like one of the first things he does is he orders pizza from the video store. You know, they had that coupon. They're like, hey, with your membership, you now get $2 Bernie's. off Bernie's pizza. <laughs> and then there's a scene where he's eating pizza. And I'm like, that's probably the first fucking time he's ever eaten pizza. And he likes it, you know? And, and, and once he's in Long Island, you know, he sort of like bristles at, 
at some of the, as you put it, like the Americana, you know, when he goes to Shea Derve, the the dive bar slash diner in Long Island. Uh, but like there's a scene again in his hotel room where he's gone shopping for himself and he's just got like snacks, you know, he's eating like a little kid basically. Yeah. No parents, no rules yeah. for Giles on this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah he's cutting loose. And, and I think even though there are moments when he sort of engages with it for the first time, you know, kind of, uh, shocked by it, uncomfortable by it. He 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 ultimately like kind of gives into it. Yeah, I think he's being liberated. I mean, and that's I think what's unique about the film as a take on fandom is it like yeah, this guy's having a fucking like sexual awakening life awakening like everything is changing for this man because of his obsession with ronnie bostock i mean it's it's clear like when he looks at ronnie for the first time that he is you know awestruck by his beauty but uh, i think one of the first moments that it really you know starts to become clear that his his fandom his obsession is linked to a sort of awakening sexuality was in that that like fantasia of the quiz show that you talked yeah. about and there's one question that i just i crack up like every time i i see it you know when when the quiz show guy is like you know Ronnie says that his most favorite thing in the world is to hang with the guys and and i think i wrote it down the question then to giles is what exactly do these guys mean to him? And Giles goes, you know, like, interesting question, you know, like hanging with the guys. Does that mean I got a chance? You know, yeah. right? I mean, like, I love it, you know, because then that's that's really what his journey is. Like, Ron, you know, Giles goes to find out, Ronnie, what did you mean by hanging with the guys? Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I mean, Giles' journey is probably the closest thing to a healthy obsession from a fan um, in stark <sighs> contrast to, well, I mean, it's, it's like the closest thing to a healthy obsession with a fan only in the sense that it is providing him with a lot of personal and emotional growth, yes. you know, but the exact opposite of that then is certainly the unhealthy obsession with fandom that we see in the fan. And I, I was confused by one moment of her journey that I wanted to get both of your reads on, which is as she's journeying on her quest, like her pilgrimage to the top of the pops television studio. I couldn't tell. Does she like, was that a college campus that she ends up in? Cause she witnesses these like nude bathing beauties. And that was a scene that I couldn't really parse out. And I don't know if it was cause I was sleepy. I wondered if like that meant anything to either of you. <laughs> I mean, I, well, on the one hand, I think also, Ryan, you know, that's, you know, nude, nude swimming and bathing in public is, is much more common in Europe than it is in the United States of America. Yes, so I know that, but. <laughs> in that regard, yeah. I mean, I think, again, like, she is also exploring her sexuality, and there's a lot in this film about, yeah, like a young woman's sort of journey uh, into her own, I guess, sense of sexual liberation. I mean, there's the 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 conflict that she has with this guy that I guess it's sort of implied. Orange scarf? Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> and yeah. all in denim. Right, you know, and then as you've mentioned, the the predatory men that she encounters on, on her journey and then seeing these young women who are uh, very open with their bodies and their, their nudity and 
this, yeah, this strange moment of sort of locking eyes with them. But yeah, like compared to like Giles' sexual awakening, right? It's, it's, uh, it's much more disturbing, right? She goes, she pulls on that string in a very dark way way ultimately right. you know uh I, I was also thinking about like the the bathing beauty sequence because it's also like shot with the filter and it is this kind of like iconic sort of german image ryan maybe i think is also something uh mm. he's he's jamming on this again like some of her when she's like skipping school we're just seeing like amazing pastoral Germany, this like insanely beautiful place that again, we must ask like, how did this place bring the Nazis? How did this this place bring her obsession? You know? So I think he is jamming on the landscape and the spaces, especially of Bavaria, you know, in Munich, like Aryan uh, beauty. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I also think one of the, big differences between what happens when these fans meet their their superstars in both films is that she's very much at the mercy of the pop star R when she meets him because it's after the sequence of a procession of top of the pop celebrities that are like getting out of their cars and signing autographs for all these teeny boppers, including a a woman celebrity that the girls are just not interested in getting autographs from. She like from her coat is providing sick, you know, photos to be autographed and they're just not interested. That happened to me once in the Cubs dugout. Uh, I've probably told you this before, but Ron, Santo came up to me and my friends and was like, let me give you an autograph right there. <laughs> you know? And we were like, oh, unsolicited. Oh, yeah. right. Sure, awesome. man. You know? Yeah, the unsolicited <laughs> autograph is like a sure sign of like not quite being there yet, you know? But the, um, the, when R does arrive and he gets out of the car and he's completely swarmed by all these women, Simone is is away from that. She's kept her distance, and she's the solitary figure that eventually R locks eyes with. And he, he senses something primal within her, but he also senses something he can control and take advantage of. Like, he thinks she's a cutie, and he knows that he can, like, take her back and do whatever he wants with her. And I yeah. think that that's, like, a further extension, then, of this argument of these cults of personalities. Like, ultimately, they're the ones using us. You know, yes. while very much, like, Giles is, at times, in control of his relationship with Bostock because he's creating this character, which which we'll detail in a moment here, but he's like leading it all. Yeah, the power dynamic is very, very different in both of the films. It's very different, yeah. Because when Simone does lock eyes and there's that charged moment of the two of them looking at each other, they suddenly become linked and she's like in his inner circle and he's the one taking her around, giving her some money to run off to the cafeteria to like get some lunch, but he knows that she'll come back to him like he's completely in command of her yeah and again i think that's also part of the the again the thing that he's exploring about you know dictators figures like that you know the 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 predatory way in which they they use the people uh that the people Mm -hmm. are are a means to their end ultimately for whatever they're 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 trying to gain you know and 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 again then when you go into the performance itself it is this like pseudo uh 
yeah, it's like pseudo-Nazism, like, called for, for ascendancy, you know, the mannequins, and him being, I mean, that's, that whole sequence is incredible. Next level. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was, like, blown away by it, right, all the mannequins, and then him wearing the, the skull cap to look like one of the mannequins that slowly starts to come alive amongst all of these lifeless things to to ultimately like uh, uh, like take a javelin and strike this very like Nazi-esque futuristic pose I mean like he's he's like manipulating the crowd on a like subconscious level you know and especially for people like her who are looking for a sense of of belonging of something greater than themselves and then how it can easily be funneled into you know yeah i guess suddenly uh you know the, the camps or whatever right for him ultimately right. with like nazism you know Schaut sich an, sie ist für dich da, das macht sie gut. Ihr Lächeln ist so wunderbar, das steht dir gut. Sie ist wirklich und sie ist doch fiktiv. Sie wird zum Ich, nur durch das Objektiv. Sie spricht nicht viel, denn ihr Körper spricht. Sie sagt nicht viel, denn das sagt ihr Gesicht. Sie spricht nicht viel, solange Schatten bricht im Stroboskopenlicht. Much like the way that Simone has to sort of break through the barrier of R's secretary uh, in order to, to get at him in a certain way, um, Giles has to have a head-on collision <laughs> with Ronnie Bostock's wife uh, with a shopping cart at the, his at the supermarket. Yeah. Oh, his girlfriend, right. Ronnie Bostock's girlfriend at the supermarket in order to break into that inner circle. Because, yeah, it isn't all just, you know, sweet for Giles. I mean, there is this moment of sort of like him drifting into stalker territory. I mean, he just shows up unannounced to, to you know, the area of Long Island where he knows Ronnie lives, but he doesn't know exactly where Ronnie lives. So he goes on this this journey where he just starts sort of like walking all over this town. And, you know, there's even that moment when he's like, okay, what do I do? And he's got his little notepad and he's hire brainstorming. Hire detective. Yeah, one, hire detective. Two, bribe postman. I love that. <laughs> he is going about it in a, in a sort of shady way. And then as you mentioned, yeah, he finally like, you know, he sees his dog. He knows the dog is around. Uh, he sees Ronnie's car, his his little sports car that he knows Ronnie, Ronnie drives. And, and he does like track the woman down to the grocery store and then just smash his cart into hers in a way that's meant to be, oops, I bumped into you. But I mean, he rams his fucking cart violently into hers and then weasels his way in by pretending that it was all just a coincidence, but there's nothing coincidental about it, including making up a niece, you know? Well, my niece 
is a huge Ronnie Bostock fan, right? But interesting that both films have postmen, uh, and both films also have convertibles that the stars drive. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love very very late in the film. It might even be the end of Long Love and Death on Long Island, where he tries to get the postman. He's like on your rounds. He's like, can you just deliver this to to Ronnie? Can you just like put this a part of your you know your your route for the day? And he's like, no no I can't uh, no it's uh, that'd be like a felony. Like I can't I can't take it. A federal <laughs> offense. Like, yeah, that'd be a federal offense. I can't accept that. And then also in uh, the fan when she like is very mad that the mailman doesn't have a letter from R for her. <laughs> I guess she I can't even remember. This might have been a dream sequence, but she like completely trashes his mail cart and like overturns it and tosses the letters. She attacks yeah. him. Yeah. yeah, yeah. She like shakes him up all on the street, and uh, I mean. That's certainly a federal offense uh, if I ever saw one. <laughs> At least in attacking the, the postman. Yeah, <laughs> not sure what the law was about attacking postmen in Munich in the. Uh... Yeah, but you do that. You did. You do that in Long Island. You'd get in trouble. Yeah. Oh yeah, but they certainly had a weird vibe in Der Fan, I felt, but you know the 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 relationship between her and the postman because it seemed very much like he was very aware of her obsession with this guy R. And oh he was yeah. Sort of, you they know, were sick of her. Yeah, and again, maybe there's something, you know, again, in this sort of weird sexual uh, dynamic that's been explored throughout the film of, like, men being kind of creepy towards her, that this postman is, like, kind of uh, uh, complicit in her, you know, her bad behavior. Like, you know, he, I think, helps her at a certain point, like, hide the letter from the school that's going to her parents. You know, he's like, I got that letter, you know, you're going to get in trouble or whatever. And I think he just gives it to her. He's, like, scared of her. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. She's going to strangle him with the headphones on her Sony Walkman, you know. Yeah, I feel like he won't be uh, surprised uh, if and when he finds out about what she did in this film. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, that is true a great sequence when she in her mind sets this arbitrary deadline like well if I don't hear back in a week this is ridiculous I'm gonna go find him uh, but there's a series of just uh, sort of like dot like kind of like short Brissanian dollies into these postmen who are mocking her and, and laughing at her you know because she keeps coming back so desperate so yeah I mean there's definitely something very patronizing but I love the way this film is so elliptical with time. I think that's one of like really its strongest elements is this, you know, her all consuming obsession and how we slip through time sort of with her because there's a lot of gaps. It's just like all of a sudden she's over here, you know, you're never Mm -hmm. really sure like where it's going in that sense. And obviously with a sort of unreliable kind of character, kind of driving the style of the yeah. film uh it's perfectly appropriate you know this especially film for feels the alternate like a, yeah. title that you mentioned you know and and as you even said in your intro this sort of trance-like quality like in both films we really get inside the mind of the the central character of the fans you know both of them and yeah it is very uh very dreamlike uh as you described it in in Derfan, you know and even like when events really start to, to to unfold again, it is in very slow sequences, very slow pacing, where how long was she in that house? Was it days? Was it weeks? <laughs> was it months? Like Was it five minutes? Was it five minutes? Yeah, yeah. We, we totally lose track of that. 
you know? Which is interesting then because I think we can say if, yeah, the Derfan feels like a sort of like music, trance music video uh, coming from the psyche of its main character. Love and Death on Long Island is quite literary, you know? It's like everything is sort of clear, nice, like detailed prose, you know, Mm -hmm. with good insight, Mm -hmm. you know? It's like, again, it's the type of, and it's sort of alluded to, right, that he's almost in his head writing the book of the movie that we're seeing, you yeah, know? Yeah, because there's like, the, the sort of framing device that begins with him sort of saying, well, where do even we begin this story, right? And that's it, you know? It's it's only revealed later to us what that framing device ultimately is. But yes, it is, it is very much him recounting his own journey to this point, you know? We open in Long Island, but then we have to go back to England where the journey began, you know? Stumbling into Hot Pants College 2 at his local cinema. (laughs) (laughs) I love how he, when he's talking to Ronnie, that Giles, like, frames his love of Hot Pants College 2 and Tex-Mex and skid marks as him being this like Shakespearean performer who provides all of this depth and beauty, but also has the broad appeal that would be for like, you know, the great unwashed in the pits, you know, he's like, you, you provide everything. Like don't get lost at everyone simply attributing you to being someone who performs for the pits. Like you are just as equally a poet. You also just have that extra ability to be broadly appealing. And that's where your magic lies. Mm -hmm. And that's what we should, probably also fill some of our listeners in on uh, part of the way that he's able to like Giles is able to kind of yes like weasel his way into spending a lot of time with Ronnie is is ultimately when he says you know or, or his girlfriend at first introduces the idea that you know Ronnie does want to he has aspersions right he wants to get out of doing these these teen films he wants to be taken seriously as an actor and Giles pounces on that and starts to then allude to the idea that, well, he just so happens to be writing his very first screenplay and Ronnie could be the perfect vessel for this high art. You know, in Europe, we're not concerned with making money and profits on our films. We're concerned, of course, with the art. And this would be a perfect opportunity for Ronnie to step outside of these these body lowbrow films. So so there's then this this whole element there of of Ronnie, you know, kind of being like, I would love to do something like this. You know, I I once saw an Alan Parker film, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and Giles is like, who's that? I mean, yeah. I love the the yeah. conceit is amazing because the implication is that this man has only seen like three films in his entire life and one of them is Hot Pants College 2 and he's going to write a screenplay. Yeah. Like, it's so fucking awesome. <laughs> like, yeah. what? But correct me if I'm wrong too, but isn't his like pitch also like he just comes up with it on the spot because yeah. he's sort of like put under the microscope and he just out of nowhere essentially pitches the enigma of Casper Hauser starring Jason <laughs> yeah. Priestley. Yeah. Jason Priestley's like, 
that's so fucking deep, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I never heard anybody in Hollywood pitch a movie like this before. And it is like, it's like, it's like, yeah, the enigma of Casper Hauser, but like through television, you know? And on a certain level, that's like, Giles is talking about him himself, right? I mean, he's talking about what happened to him when he first like got TV. Yeah. Got TV. And, and, you know, is now like learning about the world through, through Tex-Mex and skid marks and hot pants college too. Like, mm-hmm. I, and you know, I guess before I describe the, the multi-course meal that ends, um, the fan, I did want to bring up, um, the proprietor Irv, my favorite character in love and death on long oh, Island, uh, yeah. who runs Shay Derv, um, the kind of just like big long Island man who, here's an offhanded reference to puppies when Giles is like trying to track down Ronnie by like talking about dog names. And he says like, Oh, you want some puppies? I can get you some puppies for free. Like, you yeah, know, the scenes in Shader are awesome, you know, because it's like, he just suddenly has these like friends, you know, that, that Giles has now at Shader Irv and, and they're all just hanging out there, you know? I mean like the whole, the whole sequence there where I was just like hanging with the guys where finally like Giles is like (laughs) finding this weird sense of community that he didn't have in London, you know, shut away with only his, a picture of his like dead wife and, and his salads with his press agent or whatever. Yeah. You (laughs) know, but they're sitting around, they're all just talking about different types of dogs, you know, and different names, popular names for dogs. And I I think again, the, the, the really like subtle, pleasures of this film you know yes i'm glad you brought up this because like maury chaikin's performance as irv has a lot of layers to it and i think there's almost an implication that irv is also a gay man because you know when he fixes his eyes upon giles you know he's this man who very clearly stands out you know the language is very particular you know he he says to giles you're looking very attractive today, sir. And he mm-hmm. uses the word attractive multiple times when talking about men, even this English guy that he you know, knows of or whatever, you know, he's, he describes him as a very attractive man. And I think there is something there again of Irv sort of recognizing Giles, you know, seeing Giles, even if Giles can't fully see himself and yet also handled again in a very subtle and sensitive way. You get the sense that, that Irv is sort of looking out for Giles on a certain level. It starts to develop, you know, for me anyway, I think it's, it's, it's really awesome. And Simone doesn't find the that kind of community when she uh, gets <laughs> in ours orbit, right? She's very siloed off. I do want to mention one small detail that I really appreciated. Uh, did you guys catch when uh, at the end of the the top pop performance, uh, she's doing the full Citizen Kane clap, like all the <laughs> yeah. lights yeah. like go off and everyone has stopped clapping, and the host has to be like, "Hey, chill out." Like, yeah. 
you're going full cane right now. Cause she's <laughs> just like, that was the best thing I've ever seen. She can't stop clapping. Uh, and I love the brief glimpse we get into like his band. Cause there's like one backstage scene where she's just like shuffled through these rooms and then they're off to the villa, you know, but we see like yeah, his bandmates, you know, like some guy wearing a sweater, you know, I don't know. It was a, it was a whirlwind back there. And again, I think also for the director, this way of kind, kind of 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 taking the piss at this kind of an act you know like look at look at how stylized they are and how stylized the performance is and how stylized this figure is but when you take away that veneer the aesthetics of fascism yeah, like dorks yeah they're just a fucking shitty band or whatever. A very good band, to be honest. Well, with yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and I mean, probably like shitty in personality yeah, more. Because, yeah. yeah, it's sick. The music is tight, you know? Like, yeah, it's good. Yeah, but so his band is really upset that, um, you know, he's essentially cutting them off to go on, again, this like undetermined amount of time, this wild, quote unquote, time he's going to have with Simone, and he takes her back to to his villa, his very fascist, scary home that has, he has art on his wall that reminded me of, um, of Lenny Riefenstahl's Olympia. There's like that woman who's receiving like a crown, you know, on top of her head made of leaves. Um, yeah. Really just like lots of like fascist artwork on display for his like sex dungeon. Yeah. The, the, the black, red and white banners in his bedroom just sort of streaming everywhere. Yeah fascistic statues i mean again mm -hmm. it's just like the walter benjamin bells are just ringing off in my head you know fascism is the the aestheticization of politics you know i mean that's exactly what's going on here all the the pseudo-nazi art the way he's dressed i mean everything it's so mm -hmm. so intense and then ultimately it's just about a guy trying to get fucking laid <laughs> you know? yeah yeah, they have like a, an equally intense night of passion uh, between the two of them, like long lovemaking sessions, and she's like, you know, completely overjoyed, and it's it's very intense. But, you know, she hasn't felt the come down when it's over. You know, he just sort of shrugs her off when it's all done. He gets his stuff together, and he's like, I gotta go. I got like business to attend to. Uh, here's the keys. Like, you can let yourself out. You know, like you made me very happy, but well, you know, we're all done here. And she is. She's not willing to take that. And this is when the film finally shifts officially <laughs> into horror movie territory as it was advertised to a guy like me. And that's when she grabs another like symbol of fascism, right? This like Adonis, this statue, a silver statue of like a muscular man that has a fist extended out. And she takes that and she whacks him on the head with that full muscled arm of the statue breaking through the barrier of his skull and just like smearing his brains on the inside. She's oh, gnarly. She slowly pulls that thing out and he collapses and, and he is dead. I mean, everything at that villa, even though it's not filmed in slow-mo, feels like it's happening in slow motion. The sex mm -hmm. scene was long. Uh, yeah. And I don't mean long in the way that it was in... Uh, in, you know, uh, The Color of Night, where it just goes on forever. I mean, it is just <laughs> everything from the, the undressing to the kiss. I mean, it's 
everything is happening. I think you used the 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 term glacial earlier. I mean, it's all mm-hmm. happening at a glacial pace. The death sequence seems to be in slow. He's like suspended in air yeah. with that statue sticking out of the back of his fucking skull, you know? And then we enter what everyone would like to, you know, refer to as audition territory. Yes. Um, <laughs> this film, of course, notable online, yes, for being a, an obvious precursor to another slow burn that ends with dismemberment. Uh, and ultimately, yeah, the, the sort of ritualistic trance-like quality of the film continues as we are then witness to an extended sequence of her chopping it up and putting it in the freezer and licking the knife. (laughs) And uh, it's, again, all done slowly and deliberately. Yeah, I mean, the tool she uses is like an electric turkey carver, you know? Like, that's going to take its time to cut through like a man you know so she's just slowly like this thing is just like you know chopping away she's just like slowly moving it back and forth and you know there are some ellipses there even though it feels like it goes on forever like they have to jump ahead and we get the dismembered limbs and she's licking up the blood on the floor you know she's getting a little appetizer for the the meals she prepares over time. I, you know, uh, that was actually one thing I was kind of bummed about because I thought it was such a, a fun idea. And there's one exceptional shot where she's like creating some sort of gravy mix for his foot when she's got his foot in the oven and she takes like a ladle and starts spooning some of the broth over his feet to just like really marinate it and get it going. I wish we were treated to like full Hannibal styled dishes that she was going to prepare for each individual piece because with everything else in the film that takes so long i also would have liked to have spent like seven evenings seeing the different meals that she came up with and seeing how inspired they were um but she does she eats all of him you know she makes a she makes a new dinner every night presumably and then even goes so far as to grind up his bones uh and take that dust with her she fully consumes this man. I mean, and, mm-hmm. and again, this, this, this joke, this very sick joke about, you know, consumerism related to entertainment yeah. and popularity taken to its most extreme end. But, but quite literally, she ingests every piece of this person that she can. She takes him completely inside herself literally and figuratively Mm -hmm. which is even more perverse by like the final zinger of the film where she we learn she's pregnant with his child from that night of lovemaking and again we don't really know how long it took and i don't exactly know the biology of it but i like the idea that that fetus in her was like subsisting on the nutrients like from her father's from the baby's father's body oh boy (laughs) Oh, boy. So gross. Meanwhile, on Long Island, <laughs> Giles learns how to use a fax machine. Although, yeah. there is there is uh, an inevitable confrontation. Yes. As and this well. is some darkness in here as well. One of the, the things I again admired about the subtlety of this film, it also doesn't shy away from 
ultimately, yeah, like sort of laying bare the deceits of of Giles. I mean, he starts to, uh, in his all-consuming love of Ronnie, of course, try to destroy Audrey, Ronnie's girlfriend, who Mm -hmm. is just like a really nice and helpful person throughout the movie and the person who initiated, you know, Giles sort of into their inner circle. But he gets jealous and starts Mm -hmm. to like... You know, plan the seeds of destruction of their relationship. Yeah, because he, again, ultimately feels that no one can truly appreciate Ronnie the way that he does, not even his girlfriend. The moment when he confronts Ronnie with all of this, you know, when it all has to come to a head and he basically tells Ronnie that he should be... uh, the Rimbo to his Verlaine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's going gods and monsters mode. You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, again, credit where credit's due for both actors. I mean, that scene in Shea Derv where, where, yeah, Giles lays it all out for Ronnie. You know, when he comes clean to him and, and ultimately professes his love, there is just so much going on between these two characters. Uh, and again, shifting power dynamics uh it's 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 a really difficult scene but again handled i think so well by the director and and by the actors including maury chaikin who is just sort of observing observing and realizing like what the hell is going on you know i mean it's 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 amazing it really is and i think that's sort of you know the inevitable part of any sort of situation like this where you know as we were talking it's sort of like you know for giles his fandom was a liberation but this confrontation can only end in heartbreak right it can only end in heartbreak because Ronnie is not in love, not in love with you, you know, come on, man, you were, you're out of your fucking mind. Um, but it reminded me of, you know, previous film we've talked about breaking away when Dave has to, you know, get his shit pushed in by the Cinzano racing team to yeah. really grow, sure. right, to have his illusion shattered in a way that is, you know, transformative, yeah. right? People have described it as a sort of, uh, you know, in, in reviews, as like a kind of like tragic ending for Giles. But I I don't read this film as, as a tragedy. Like, I ultimately see it the way that you've described, Mark, as, or Marsh, as this... Mark. <laughs> it's hot in here right now. You have no idea how hot it is. Um but yeah, you know, uh, I see it as the way that, that you see it, Marsh, where, where of course, the, this confrontation isn't going to end well for Giles. And we know it. Everyone knows it's not going to end well for Giles. It's not going to end with them smooching. Yeah, he's no. not going to pull out his, his journal of Bostakiana and, and, and Ronnie's yeah. going to be touched by it, you know? Um, but yes, you know, it is, it is for Giles this, this necessary step to fully, like, realize who he is you know, fully finally see himself in this. And I think it's like, for me, the ending is, 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 is beautiful. It's, it's really like a positive thing. Yeah. It's a, it's, you know, it's called love and death on on Long Island, but he, he dies to be reborn. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Like he was this stuffy old widowed straight British writer. And now he's, uh, you know, out in the world being this gay guy with his cool new sunglasses, with his cool sunglasses (laughs) that his star friend (laughs) gave him. And it is bittersweet and heartbreaking, but it's, 
the, you know, it's a uh, Giles year zero, you know, yeah. like that's what's going on. And, you know, as you've you know alluded to already, the, the, the facts, the movie kind of climaxes with the most epic facts <laughs> ever sent. Yeah. Tom Clancy, eat your heart out. Dude, 100%, <laughs> you know, as as Giles, you know, totally sort of shattered by this rejection lays himself even even further uh, bare to to Ronnie and sends him a fax that is basically the novel of the film we've just watched. And we get to see Ronnie like just aghast as his fax machine is just spitting out this this unbroken scroll that is everything. Giles' entire journey to that confrontation. But ultimately it's it's I think a positive thing for Ronnie as well, you know this 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 confrontation he had because Ronnie has grown as well. Like Giles has sort of pushed him to take himself seriously as an actor, to strive for more, you know, to reach beyond himself. And again, in a weird way that parallels real life, this movie came out in 1997. Priestley talked about how. It was something he was able to make on a on a break from shooting Beverly Hills 90210. But only a year later then, Priestley would leave 90210 to seek out better projects for himself. So I found it like oddly compelling in the way that it might have also affected Jason Priestley as an actor and as a person. Yeah, this to is say, a documentary about Jason Priestley. Yeah. Like, hybrid documentary, fuck, yeah. Right. Like, <laughs> I can go out there and I can do more. And, like, going and making this, yeah, this weird indie film or whatever, like, pushed him to take himself more seriously. Well, you know, the these are our, our fans, Marsh. Um, I hope that this episode can also function as a love letter to our fans. You know, like we don't, we don't think you're all going to chop us up and eat us, but, uh, it is, we are yet, but we are, we are grateful for the long faxes that you have sent us so far fans. Um, I guess I would ask you, Marsh, you know, what are some, what are some other depictions of fans that you, that you love? Well, uh, you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend a very obvious canon fan film that I already mentioned earlier, um, because it's also bound up in my own fandom, and that, of course, is Misery, starring James Caan. Oh, the late, the late great James Caan, one of my favorite actors, and uh, just wanted to throw this out there as a as a tribute to him. I know we're all Caan heads uh, here at the Gauntlet, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean it's misery. You know, it's uh, it's one of the great one of the great fan uh, author relationships ever committed to celluloid. You know, just had a long convo with my dad about it too because of the passing of James Caan, and my dad just like boy misery what a movie (laughs) (laughs) the people remember it's true and i guess uh, maybe you know a a more oddball pick but one i think that kind of expands the universe of uh, dare fan uh, is peter watkins privilege a film that is ostensibly about a star but by virtue of it being about a star it's about 
fans and nationalism and fandomonium. Nazism and fandomonium, you know, and the church. And it's a Peter Watkins film. And so uh, if you're into that kind of thing, uh, check that out as a I, certain kind of fandomonium. And I felt very much that Derfan, uh, you know, was, was exploring similar ideas in like mm. the pop star that, you know, of R was very much like in that, you know, privileged vein. So absolutely. Well, it was, uh, my topic this week and it was great to, to be back here with you. Uh, but next week we're, uh, back to the usual, you know, Andy, it's, uh, your topic, I believe. It is. It is. Um, if we're trying to just get back to our normal routine, I suppose it is. Uh, so, you know, I was really racking my brain because I, I wanted us to, to, to really switch things up. And I just wanted to, to try to go to a place where, where I, I really don't think we've, we've ventured at all. And, you know, a lot of my picks tend to, to be rooted in, you know, something that's going on in the world or current events or something that's just popped into my head. And, and this one isn't, it isn't related at all to anything, but, <laughs> but it's something my, my girlfriend actually suggested. Cause she was like, you know, I noticed something you guys haven't done at all. And, and so that's really where I went with this, this upcoming topic. Uh, something that I think is, is very, um, unexplored territory for us here on the gauntlet. And so I'd like us next week, I'd like you boys to put a spotlight on animated films. Bring us an animated film. And I, I'm going to leave it totally open there. You know, I don't really want to, you know, guide you too much, but I'd like us to, 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 to get a little animated here uh, uh, on, the, on the podcast. So bring me something animated for next week i'm already drawing marsh is actually a very good very good artist ryan i've seen your drawings they are not good at all no mine are bad scribbles as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at marsh's mailbag at gauntlet movie podcast at gmail.com thanks everyone I'd like to say a few words by Walt Whitman, if that's okay with everyone. Now finale to the shore. Now land and life. Finale and farewell. The untold want by life and land never granted. Now voyagers sail thou forth to seek and find.